Tonight's talk is on mindfulness and four supporting virtues, confidence, courage, acceptance, and renunciation. It's become a custom for me to begin a retreat at the first talk by the expression of gratitude. I'll start with a, a story. Every Every January now, this is going to be the eighth year, January, uh, we've been teaching a retreat in Upper Burma. Michelle McDonald, myself, Carol Wilson, uh, Joseph taught there one year. In this area called the Sagain Hills, which is a, uh, a spiritual heart center of Burma and, and Thera Theravada Buddhism, there's about 700 nunneries and monasteries, 7,000 monks and nuns who live in this area. And they've been practicing there and studying for uh, over a thousand years. Uh, and even much longer than that, there are hundreds, probably thousands of caves there where uh, unique individuals, nuns, monks, lay women, men have um, done extraordinary practice. So they call this area the abode of the Aryas, or noble ones, enlightened ones. Long tradition, both of those who have practiced for, uh, for liberation, and also long tradition of those who have practiced uh, for bodhisattva, taking the vow of the bodhisattva to become a Buddha and use their life and their time of practice in service of others, developing the spiritual virtues as they do so. Every year that I come back, some of the great masters uh, have passed away. Like just in this last year, uh, four of them passed away from January last year to January this year. Uh, so it's really a blessing to be able to get to meet one, and one that I had met January last, who, who died since, is nearly 100 years old. And the, the monk that we teach with, the abbot of this 14th century monastery where we created this western center uh, in, the, in the back of the valley, uh, he took us to meet him. He's, he's, he was blind, and he could barely, barely hear. Uh, and he had a full-time attendant who would introduce and, tra you know, and translate, tell him what was going on. He may as well had one of those high school megaphones. That's how loud he had to yell in the, in, in the ear of this 100-year-old monk, you know, to say, this is Stephen Smith from Hawaii but really, really loud, so it was kind of jarring and, and shaking. And, uh, uh, and the old monk usually said, Pyoba, uh, like, what? Can you say that again, please? <laughs> <laughs> and once the, once the introductions were made, then he'd, he'd call us forward and hold out his hand so that we would give him our hands. And that's how he would communicate and feel. His hands had this extraordinary coolness. And at the same time, they, they emanated a beautiful meta warmth. Can't explain it, but it was something like these long, slender fingers, both cool and warm at the same time. And so we spent some timeless hour or two there. And then as we were leaving, uh, he, he blessed each one of us, there were, you know, three or four of us, teaching teachers and translators. His blessing was very simple. May you be happy. And you could just feel it, go right to the heart. May you be peaceful. And may you be free of even one unskillful mind moment. So pure and so true, you know, and his his emanation, his 
attainment was clearly uh, quite realized that he himself seemed not to have had an unskillful mind moment for a long, long time. And so leaving there, you know, was leaving with this, with this blessing just washing through the body you know, on the cellular level and feeling such gratitude that such people exist and such people have for 2,500 years uh, been carrying these teachings for us in their lineage. So gratitude is, is a practice. It's customary several times a year in Burma to, to celebrate the accomplishments of nuns and monks in their studies. And so at the compounds, and they're often these large compounds, combination nunnery uh, uh, monastery, uh, there might be 10,000 people coming to acknowledge the work you know, of maybe a couple hundred nuns and monks after their studies and after their, after their accomplishments. Their, their tests are really grueling and very hard. And some of them just take it quite nonchalantly. And yes, I've, I've failed now for the past 12 years, and I'm studying for next year. And they just, you know, they just keep at it as part of their practice and they don't judge themselves. They just do it. And they begin these ceremonies by, uh, with songs of gratitude, chants, really. But they're, they're appreciating all the lineages, lineage of parents, that is one's own genetic lineage, lineage of teachers, one's teacher, one teacher's teacher, and so forth. Uh, and, and the lineage itself that have all come, like various tributaries, you know, from the great lineage of the Buddha's teachings of liberation, wisdom, and compassion. So when I go there in January, I first stop and see my teacher, Saira Upandita. And I was first moved um, by these teachings, and I owe my initial gratitude to, to Joseph and Sharon, uh, from whom I uh, received these teachings 30 years ago now. Uh, and when I, when I heard them, I felt, this is home. You know, I've never turned back. It was it. And I followed the trail back to India to also sit with Munindra Ji and Goenka Ji, uh, and eventually in the uh, in the later part of the 70s, going to Burma and being also that feeling of being home. Uh, you know, and this is a place that's held and preserved uh, and is really one of the only strongholds left of some of the very pure traditions uh, of these teachings. So I go to my teacher, Upandita, whom I've been with for 22 years. Um, and express my own gratitude. I uh, went to Burma for the teachings. I wasn't looking for a teacher. But it was just one of those karmic things where there's just an immediate mutual recognition. And this closeness has remained. So I feel always uh, really moved to continue to thank him, you know, receive teachings and, and so forth. He asks what he can do for the retreat. Sometimes we need an, an extra translator or, or something, and he provides that. So as usual, you know, I, I paid my respects to, for, for all that, all the nurture of the Dhamma for the past 22 years. And he said, well, then you have to thank my teacher. And his teacher was uh, Mahasi Sayadaw, who I ordained with be, before he passed away. And his teacher, who was the Jetawan Mingun Sayadaw from this area, Mingun, north of the Sagain Hills that I was talking about earlier. And his teacher, Halaka, and so on. You know, uh, and, and there's such an interweaving of, of teachers, monks and nuns, such a vast interrelated web that it's amazing. It really is like hundreds, hundreds of... Uh, 
tributaries leading to this one great river, you know, back to the time of the Buddha. And, you know, and then he said, he spoke of the two rare and precious types of people. One is a benefactor, that is, someone who's, who's helped us without any expectation of return in some way, out of pure generosity. And the second rare and precious type of person is one who acknowledges and appreciates uh, uh, gifts bestowed on them, what someone has done for them. And if a, an opportunity arises, uh, to somehow repay them if they can, even just with metta or expression of gratitude. In recent years, I, I have been working with another teacher who I didn't expect to, to find, and I wasn't looking for, a Burmese nun who comes from two lineages. One of them is uh, from the, my, my teacher's teacher's teacher, this Mingun Sayadaw, who in fact we all owe a great debt of gratitude toward. He was born in the later part of the 1800s, and it was at a time when the Dharma was um, uh, not being taught as a practice very much. It was quite cloistered in the monasteries and mostly study or concentration practices. But this young monk, Unarada, was really had a lot of parami, a lot of uh, spiritual virtues, and was looking for a living practice. And he walked all over Burma, finally ended up in the Sagain Hills alongside the Irrawaddy River, and found an ascetic in one of those caves, someone highly attained, and said, you know, where, where can I find the, you know, the practice of liberation, the wisdom practice? I've studied, I've done the uh, concentration practices, I, but I haven't found the peace of the unconditioned, the unborn, Nibbana. And the, the ascetic looked deeply into him and said simply, why are you looking outside of the four foundations of mindfulness? Why are you looking outside of the body, the feelings, the mind, and, and all the, the objects of the mind, all the experiences of the mind? It's all he said, you know, and he had studied the sutta, of the mindfulness practice, the Satipatthana Sutta. And he went off, practiced, and reputedly also became fully enlightened. And, and he was the, the Mingun Sayadaw. That was the teacher of Mahasi Sayadaw, who was the teacher of, of um, Upandita and many others. There's some way in which when we express our gratitude through reflection, through metta, through saying it, it opens us up to receive the transmission that's pushed through the lineage, that's pushed through due to the, the renunciation and complete commitment and dedication of the nuns, the monks, laywomen, laymen, uh, over 2,500 years. It makes us a receptacle, it makes us available to, to take in these teachings on a very deep, nonverbal level, to awaken within the, the heart of wisdom, compassion. Mindfulness of body feelings, mind, and mind objects. The four foundations really include everything. It's everything that's real, everything that's felt experience. Concepts aren't felt experience. Uh, vibrations are felt experience. Tension is felt experience. So when we watch the breath, when we watch the body, we're tuning in to, in the archaic um, listings I call earth, water, fire, air. 
Earth is, is just textures. It's how we feel softness, hardness, smoothness, roughness. What we experience in the body is texture. Water is cohesion, the binding element, or the fluid elements that we feel. These, these are real. We can know them in the moment. They're not conceptual, you know, unless we think about them, unless we interpret them. But there's an immediacy of feeling texture. There's an immediacy of feeling you know, a, a cohesive ball of energy or plate of pressure. Uh, temperature, of course, heat and coolness. That's real. You can know it in the moment as a felt experience. And air element is, is motion, movement, uh, vibration, oscillation, stiffness, uprightness. This is how we know the body as it is. And we see it in its nature of continuously in flow, continuously in, in change. These elements themselves aren't separate from each other. You know, any single element has all the other ones within them. One may predominate, but as a metaphor, this is an image of a, a, a water drop. You know, it's a, a, the cohesive water element is there, unless it's flowing, but as a drop. Uh, temperature is there. Uh, motion is there, either in its uh, form of, of stiffness or in its form of vibration, if it's moving. And it, texture is there. The water drop is soft. Feelings, these two, uh, are, are felt experience. They're real. It's a mental phenomena. Feelings here means pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This is a critical area of investigation in our mindfulness practice. Because here is the link between either where we identify with experience, that is, where a pleasant experience becomes attachment to that pleasant experience, and we identify with that, or an unpleasant experience becomes aversion toward that, we push it away, identify with that, or it's neutrality if we're not aware of it. It's nature of being neither pleasant or unpleasant is conducive to, to ignorance in the mind, to not seeing clearly. Or, if we're mindful, feelings are the link to awareness and wisdom, to understanding. Feelings are just feelings. They're uh, a universal mental factor, meaning they arise every moment of consciousness. Whatever we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or think has a feeling tone. And often it's quite um, a shift when we're overwhelmed in some way. So much is coming at us, and it's overwhelmingly pleasant or overwhelmingly unpleasant. Rather than try to notice all the various components of physical phenomena, mental states, and so forth, we just open up to its entirety of being either pleasant or unpleasant. And it creates a, a spaciousness, a non-attachment. So we tune into just feelings. This pleasant feeling in flow. Unpleasant feeling in flow. The mind itself, the third foundation of mindfulness. It's very subtle. It, it too is sensation. All that happens within the mind any kind of exploration of the mind is this third foundation of mindfulness, the observing mind. Whatever arises, if we're watching the mind, whether it's fear or joy, and we watch how it affects the mind, how it colors or flavors the mind, how we might react, how it might soothe or calm, or how it might disturb and agitate, all that is the exploration of, of mind even down to seeing on a microscopic level the stream of consciousness itself arising and passing, arising and passing each moment. Every moment of experience is a moment of consciousness. 
or every moment of consciousness is a moment of experience. It's up for a moment. We know a sight, or we know a sound, or we know a sensation. It's gone. Now, it has such velocity to it that we often objectify it, uh, solidify, you know, and identify and create the sense of self that, that is observing, that is someone being mindful. Uh, and, and that's why an understanding of, of, of mindfulness as pre-verbal awareness or pre-conceptual awareness is essential. We cannot observe the mind. We cannot understand the nature of thoughts if we did not have this moment-to-moment pre-symbolic awareness. You know, that is before initial experience proliferates into concept, into symbolic form, into constructs, before we interpret our experience. Mostly, we go around uh, relating to an interpretation of the world, an interpretation or an idea of ourselves or others. In practice, when we create this, this shelter, this container, and, 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 and try and still the mind, grow quiet, as mindfulness becomes more subtle, then it's working on this pre-verbal, pre-verbal level connecting or attuning to experience before it's embellished into concepts. It's a very powerful way of, it enters us into a different world entirely. An example that, or analogy that I like to use, uh, comes from an indigenous person from Botswana. Years ago, in the mid-'80s, Michelle McDonald and I were, were teaching in South Africa. <clears throat> and in between one of the retreats, we were guests at a, a game reserve and went out during the August full moon, every day, every night, um, you know, to try and experience this animal realm. It's really something, you know. It was really... It was really a place where you feel this isn't where humans belong. You know, this place is ruled by animals. Some of them very big and very powerful. And they were all there. Elephants and, and uh, lions and lionesses and wildebeest, impala. Uh, every kind of you know, zebra and giraffe. Also incredibly... Uh, attuned to their landscape over millions of years of evolution, that their camouflage was perfect. You know, going out by oneself, it was really, really difficult to see anything at all. So we went out with this tracker. His name was Lapata from Botswana. And here was a person as if himself grew out of the earth. He was so finely attuned to his environment, to the landscape, and had what we all have, and have forgotten that we have, uh, this indigenous mind, this capacity to attune to our environment, free of our ideas, you know. We had to have this quality, you know, first of all, just to survive. If we looked at the world conceptually, we wouldn't have been able to survive. So we had to be able to tune into the immediacy of our environment, the way it actually is. Well, Lapata clearly had this ability. I didn't know he had it, though, for some days. We'd go out, uh, and, and I'd be, uh, we'd either be walking or in a jeep. Uh, and the first time, first couple of times out, we were out, and I was sitting next to the driver, our, our host at the reserve, and, and Lapata is in the back talking with Michelle. And there was quite an animated conversation, and he seemed not to be really looking for animals for us to see. You know, and I was 
kept looking back for him and wasn't doing it. This big foot-long pair of binoculars, so I started looking, and I couldn't see anything. Every so often, uh, while Lepata was talking to Michelle, he'd just point somewhere that he didn't even seem to be looking at. And we'd stop and look, and still couldn't see anything, even with the binoculars. But by and by, something would come out. You know, out would come zebra or impala. But it took some moments for it to form. And then again, driving along, Lapata, uh, very relaxed, hanging out with Michelle. Uh, and and you know, Michelle was into rocks, collecting these crystal kind of rocks. And there were millions of them all over the place. So they, had a, they, they were every... 30 yards, we'd stop and fill up a basket of rocks. They're looking at these rocks. And I think, well, gee, now he's really not searching for anything. And I have to look, in, look even harder for these creatures. But then again, he'd just point in some direction. And he didn't seem to be looking. And out from these tall trees would come a giraffe, uh, or a, a, a wildebeest, or we'd see a a leopard in the tree, hidden among the spots of the trees. And it was just amazing how that would happen. And I thought, you know, gee, he's got some, he's got some game going here. He's, he feeds them in that area. Or this, he's got them tied down. He's got them trained. So it makes his job easier. But by the end of the week, I realized that he was actually being completely relaxed and completely tuned in to the environment. Now, when I talk about an indigenous mind, I'm talking about the same kind of mind we use with this pre-verbal, pre-conceptual awareness. It's not proliferating on the immediate sense impression that comes into view or comes into mind as an image. That there's just the immediate attunement or connection and the the sense fields are a mere extension of Lapata's mind. These happenings aren't out there. They're right here, right here at the eye door, right here at the ear door. It's not something that's happening out there. So his, his gaze, he's not staring to look you know, for the eagle or the cobra or the wildebeest or the eland or whatever animal. He's already, the landscape is already within his mind. And he just notices little shifts or changes in light and shadow, in color and form. That's what's noticed. The object as a concept is not a reality at all. He notices that shift, and then, and then there's the looking at it, and then as it forms into a creature, the naming process happens. You know, the conceptual process kicks in. That's how he was seeing things. And that's how he saw things as from a child onward. The Lapata's world is the world, the meditative world of, of, of the meditative mind when we get really quiet and so still that there isn't this habit of continuous mental proliferation, continuous naming and forming of concepts and constructs so that we're no longer uh, in relationship with an interpretation of the world, an interpretation of experience, or an interpretation of our mind and body, but in direct felt experience with it. So this way, we tune into the body as these elements, as motion, vibration, pressure, heat, and so forth. We tune into the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant. Pleasant is not attachment, very different. Attachment is a reaction to pleasant. Pleasant is, is ethically neutral. It's just what it is. Unpleasant is not aversion. It's just an experience of unpleasantness. Aversion is a reaction to that experience. Watching the mind, or whatever happens to the mind. 
the thoughts themselves, and when we're lost in the narrative or lost in the story, it's not meditation. We're, we're, we're in a conceptual world. But when we're mindful that thinking is happening, when there's knowing of thinking, or knowing of wandering, or knowing of fantasy, that's real. We're in touch with what's happening in the moment. We can know that. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness are all the things that we explore. Last night, Joseph talked about the five hindrances. Uh, th those are mind objects. Those are, those are listed uh, among the many things that are worthy to, to explore as dhammas. This word dhamma also means uh, something like things. So all things, everything, all experience are dhammas. And uh, so the hindrances, they are dhammas to be known, to be explored. Also the set of uh, factors called the enlightenment factors, they're listed under dhammas too. The sense fields are listed. So we're here to quiet, cleanse the doors of perception so that we understand the nature of our senses. We understand the experience of seeing and hearing, sensing and knowing. Not lost in the objects or content, but precisely we are the experience of seeing. We are, we're being the experience of hearing and sensing and so forth. So dhammas is, uh, is an exploration of all the things of experience, our experience itself. All dhammas are impermanent. All dhammas are arising and passing. They're all unsatisfactory because they're not lasting. They're not stable. All dhammas are not self. Except one. There's one dhamma that is permanent, one dhamma that is not suffering, that is happiness. One dhamma that is still not self, however. And that's the unconditioned. The story of, uh, in the Buddhist time of this woman who, um, she saved the life of, of a robber. You know, she fell in love with this robber that she saw from a distance and had him saved from the gallows. And he took her up to a hill and tried to rob her, you know, of all her jewelry. So she pushed him off the cliff. And as he fell down, uh, a little sprite who was the bodhisattva in a former life uh, was said to take delight and clap as, as this robber turned into particles and fell apart. And uh, uh, these, are many, these are some of the many adventures of the bodhisattva. And so Bada decided she can't go back to her old life. So she shaved her head. And uh, she became a wandering ascetic. She was very sharp. Uh, and after a while, no one could answer her questions. And uh, in fact, uh, uh, she could answer everyone else's questions. Until she met Sariputta, the, one of the chief disciples of the Buddha. Uh, and they had an interaction. And she asked a, uh, he asked a few questions that she answered, and then she asked him a question. And he said, or rather, it was his turn to ask a question. And he simply said, what is the one? And for the first time in many years, she said, I don't know. Sariputta saw that she was ready. And the Buddha wasn't far away, and they went to see the Buddha. And the Buddha also saw that she was weary of conditioned phenomena uh, and re ready to, uh, and, and disenchanted with the life of conditioned phenomena and ready to make the leap. So he simply said, um, better than a thousand verses is one verse whose, uh, uh, with which contains an answer that leads to the truth. That's all he said. And then she understood, became fully enlightened, and became known as, uh, as the chief disciple, uh, quick to understand the nature of wisdom and uh, 
and uh, uh, the way to liberation and all the psychic powers. So mindfulness, pre-conceptual, pre-symbolic, pre-verbal awareness, the attunement to uh, the present moment. Mindfulness is only operative in things arising in the present moment. Anything to do with the past or the future is a thought formation. It's not mindfulness. Mindfulness, its nature is an awareness uh, applied at, a, at the attunement of just what's happening in this moment. So taking some of the indigenous you know, wisdom from Lapata's ability to attune to his environment, to his world, it's understanding this, this capacity of a beginner's mind or the soft gaze of, of awareness that's not staring at objects, it's not really looking at objects and defining or um, elaborating on objects at all. But it's more like looking at things out of the corner of the eye and tuning more into process, attuning to the nature of these objects. What is the nature of these objects? Well, the nature of the objects is their, is their dhamma nature, their law of arising and passing, their nature as flow, their nature as being unstable. You can't grab on to any of this. There is no sensations that we can hold and keep permanently, no mind states or emotions that aren't themselves in, in continuous change and transformation. So to, to learn that deep sense of, of relaxation and ease coming back again and again to the mind or body to look for tension and noticing that to, to relax because the more, the more relaxed, the more still the mind becomes and then the more subtle and pure the mindfulness, the sati. It needs that, that stillness and it needs that uh, stability and, and subtlety to keep attuning on a, on a pre-verbal level. Think how strong our habit is to look and already be looking at the concept, already naming the concept and having associations with it, uh, liking or disliking, judgments, thoughts, and so forth. So how much of that, how much of our effort goes in to being so quiet and balanced and poised in this moment so that we can see. Once initiated, the mind has its own innate urge toward practice. It wants to practice. It's as if it wants to return home. You know, like a horse set free out in the pasture, runs back to the barn. We, we start this process of, of stilling and quieting the mind. And it's, it's generative of its own deepening. It inclines towards more subtle levels of consciousness by itself. And with wisdom, we make adjustments in energy, you know, concentration, pull back when we're uh, too tight, trying, lift up when uh, we're lax and there's not the energy. So there's like a, a musician, there's this continuous attunement of the strings until they, there's harmony. But it starts to happen of its own nature, that is the mind. The restorative inclination toward calm and stillness Stillness feels like a very familiar feeling. 
even if we haven't had it for a long time or maybe never had it, but it just feels right. We feel in place. We feel connected. And little shifts be, begin to happen. Or sometimes, you know, tectonic shifts. And all of a sudden, it's like we've walked through into this, we turned a corner and we're in another world. It's a world where no matter what's going on, there's this centeredness, this sense of quiet within. Often we, we start losing a sense of, of who we even are. But yogis often say, I, have not, I haven't a clue who I am, but I've never felt closer to myself. You know, because what's peeling away? Well, all those mental proliferations, all the concepts, the ideas that we have about ourselves, who we think we are. Form falls away into, into just the immediacy of impressions arising through the sense door. In this centeredness, it often is often a sense of feeling in the zone. Everything feels effortless. You know, we're watching the breath and, and all the sensations, pressure, tension, just come into awareness without any sense of having to do anything at all. And notice pressures in, in the chest. We notice sounds, uh, mental states come and go. It starts to become like a symphony of awareness. Or at times we're noticing the entire symphony and little plays, or little strengths and uh, ebbs and flows here and there. Or sometimes as the mind inclines to attune to a certain section, you know, maybe the string section, and then again to something else. But it's all a natural movement and, and rhythm, effortlessly going uh, in, in the sense of zone. The word for concentration, uh, Samadhi, for concentration and stillness. It has a literal meaning in, in, of perfectly put together. The sense of the mind no longer distracted, no longer fragmented, you know, no longer trying to uh, figure things out, one part of the mind and the other, but just this cohesive wholeness that is with what's happening. Our senses become really rarefied. Sometimes colors really soften, become subtle, or we see spectrums we, we don't normally notice. We look at something we've looked at, you know, a uh, hundred times and see it in a very different way. And hear sounds, tone and timbre, in ways that we don't hear, usually. And sensations in the body, we become more accustomed, whether pleasant or unpleasant, to feel the body in entirely different ways. Particularly when there's that sense of awareness arising from within the body, rather than some outside observer, you know, assessing and categorizing and, 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 and judging the body. There's just this whole sense of feeling the body as it is, as it's in motion. At the last a year and a half off and had collected hundreds of thousands of mileage points and, and uh, took an adventure last summer with my daughter and um, and young man who's like uh, an adopted son, uh, Hanai son, we say in Hawaii. Uh, and we, we went to Siberia, which is just this amazing, amazing wilderness, undiscovered uh, land. And we went to Tuva, which is on the border of Mongolia. Uh, and way out, then we took a helicopter and got dropped off in some place where the helicopter only comes twice in a week. And we got stuck uh, in an early Siberian snowstorm. So the helicopter couldn't come. And you know, there's no hotels or telephones or restaurants. And, we're at the mercy of, of, of the indigenous people, the Tuvan people. We're similar to Mongolian people, all living off the land. Uh, and it's, uh, it's uh, known for its tens of thousands of year old shamanic tradition. 
and also since about the uh, 6th, 7th, 8th century for uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, which is now just resurfacing after 70 years of repression. So it's kind of, it was kind of exciting in that way to see uncovered, literally in many cases, because a lot of the Tonkas and, and uh, Buddha teaching statues, texts, and shamanic instruments were buried in the ground in caves and whatnot. Anyway, we got even more stuck because we went out on, on a, a, a horseback uh, ride and got caught in another storm uh, with, with uh, dangerous lightning. So we were, we were six hours or so from the village and, and couldn't go anywhere. And so we found some local people who took us into a cabin. And in that cabin, the eight of us, very small space, like the size of one of those interview rooms, there's eight of us, with Chandra, my daughter, being the only woman. Uh, so I slept next to her in the corner. <laughs> but they're wonderful people. And you know, out of nowhere came food, came fish and, and water and stories. Um, and this, this area of Tuva, it's a combination of forest and tundra. Uh, and they spoke of the old shamans. Uh, and I'm talking about meditation. We had a translator, this uh, sort of mad psychologist that Joseph put me in touch with 10 years ago. <laughs> that, uh, you know, is always off on some thing collecting rocks, among other things. And, you know, everything is some major discovery of ancient importance, one thing or another. But it was really fun to be with. We are talking about the traditions and talking about silence in Vipassana and talking about the silence in the shamanic world. And so one of them spoke about this kind of silence that they describe that uh, in the cold of winter. And the, the cold of winter there is like minus 70, 80, 90 degrees. And that this is phenomena that happens that, you know, when they're outside and there's an out-breath and the breath goes out and the moisture of the breath uh, turns into crystals, you know, little crystal plates hover a moment, and then they come together and they tingle down to the ground. And this tingling sound in this vast, silent whiteness they call the whispering of the stars. The whispering of the stars. Beautiful term to describe what happens when, when our own minds become really still, centered, and silent. So let's see if in 10 minutes I can talk about the four supporting virtues. <laughs> Confidence. Confidence is faith, inspiration, conviction, daring, trust. My teacher said to me when I first uh, uh, began practicing with him, ordained in, in Burma. He said, all of spiritual practice is the awakening and deepening of faith. All of spiritual practice, the entire life of our spiritual practice. Faith is the sustainability element of practice. It, it carries us along in its protective fold because it, allow, it brings, bit by bit, uh, little confidences that we can take another step forward. You know, we begin to see, for example, that there's just this stream of physical phenomena and this stream of mental phenomena. And then we see how they're inseparable, intertwined, interconnected. And then we begin to see their, their nature, you know, when we... Uh, when we're not, when we're looking at objects 
not directly, not staring at them, but out of the periphery, that soft gaze of the beginner's mind, we notice their nature of change, their nature of instability, their nature of uh, emptiness of self. So this sustained element uh, supports the, the, the mindfulness, carries it through the early stages of practice and becomes more mature, more verified with these little insights and gradually grows into a very strong trust and keeps cycling around. The trust in, in, inspires more practice and, and uh, makes mindfulness more subtle and pure and that, that deepens the stillness, the concentration of mind. And then we have, a, we have greater insight. And then from that insight, there's more confidence. And that keeps cycling around for the life of our practice. This faith has two really interesting qualities. One is a, a venturing spirit. It's a, that's, the, that's the aspect of daring, and the willingness to walk into mystery into the unknown, to, to relinquish our comforts and securities uh, and all that's familiar. Uh, and daring to go, you know, into these inner landscapes, you know, or to direct our lives in ways that uh, the Dhamma is drawing us, drawing us forward. In the indigenous Polynesian world, they, they speak of um, uh, when they sail in the traditional ways without any instruments. They, they speak of keeping the vision of the island in mind. So this Micronesian master uh, named Mao about 27 years ago was teaching a, a young Hawaiian man and friend of mine how to do this ancient style of navigation. So they were standing on the southern shore of, of Oahu, the island where I, I was born and raised. And Mao said, can you see Tahiti? That's where they were going to sail. You know, it's 2,500 miles over the horizon. And Nainoa says, I can see it in my mind. And Mao says, good. Keep the vision of the island in mind. If you lose the vision, you lose your way. And then there's the discipline of actually sailing there, you know, by attunement, just like in Lapata's world, this sense attunement to stars which aren't out there. They cycle, you know, right before the eye here, and sounds and currents and all the turbulent systems of the world, uh, waves and and, uh, and swells, the multitude of different currents that can happen simultaneously, and uh, coloration, cloud formation, rain, wind, all those attunements are how one sails, and they have to continually be in touch. As someone asked a navigator uh, a couple of years ago when they made a, a final leg of a sail to, to Rapa Nui, Easter Island, how do you sort of, how do you hold when you are sailing, how do you hold distance? Do you sail mile, like nautical mile by nautical mile? And the navigator said, no, go inch by inch. And that's the discipline we use in our own practice. You know, it's moment by moment, little increment by increment. Not looking, you know, we might have the, the, the vision of island in mind, the vision of an inspiration, of enlightenment, and fulfilled in compassion and loving kindness. Uh, but then there's the, the immediate discipline of moment-to-moment -moment awareness. You know, how are you going to get up and go out that door in a few minutes to do the walking meditation? The second aspect of, of confidence is, is tranquility, which I really spoke of quite a bit in talking about uh, stillness. Uh, we have it and then we lose it and then we have it again and then we lose it. 
in Nainoa, the first navigator's first solo sail in, in the Pacific, uh, at some point, uh, a, the, the master sailor, who wasn't helping him at all, but who was on the boat, he, he got up from under his tarp, came out, and ordered the crew to put up the storm sails. And there was no sign of any storm, but the crew did what he said. And he went back under his tarp, you know, took a rest. And, uh, and they did this, and the storm indeed came. And Nainoa, uh, you know, was really struggling. Of, uh, the storm covered everything. He couldn't see the stars. He couldn't see the moon. Couldn't feel the currents. You know, it was just beginning uh, where to go and how to do this. And the navigator, you know, is like the the um, the uh, the shaman, the inspirer of the crew. And so he had to hold a certain stature and, and uh, exude a certain confidence. But inside, he was telling me he was really anxious and worried and, and afraid, and then getting really, really tired, kind of walking here and walking there and making adjustments, but not knowing the right direction. So finally, he said he went to the back, just put his arm on the gunnels, had the 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 uh, wet weather gear, you know, had the hood over and propped himself up like he was awake and then he just put his head down and he said he just completely felt like crashing. So he just let go. But he said, I didn't crash. He said, instead, I, I felt completely relaxed and this warm feeling came up in my body and in my mind. And then all of a sudden, there was just this deep sense of knowing. And, and then I knew where the moon was. And so then he, he gave orders to change directions and, and sail in the direction that he thought the moon was. And underneath his tarp, you know, Mao, the Micronesian master, just smiled. And he was right. A few hours later, the clouds cleared and there was the moon. Courage, actually, Joseph mentioned that last night, courageous energy. You know, there's no more profound work that we can be doing in, in this life, in, in this short life that we have, this precious life that we have, than this inner work, than this work of really understanding the nature of ourselves. What is this body? What is this mind? Particularly, what is this mind? that can produce so much suffering or that can become so incredibly bright and beautiful uh, and radiant, enlightened. It's like if you think of a bronze bowl, this is a, a story from a sutta by Sariputta uh, that's tarnished. Uh, it takes a lot of courage to have the honest self-assessment to acknowledge our, our flaws and, and our faults, our defilements, you know, our greed, hatred, delusion. But to acknowledge that and then to use our effort and our mindfulness is like polishing that tarnished bronze bowl. And what's behind the tarnish? You know, with a little polishing, the, the innate, brightly shining uh, radiance just comes out. It's already there. This is the work that we do with our own minds. The radiance is just there. And our, uh, our courageous energy and effort is going toward that. So much opens up along the way. Uh, and we feel more and more guided. We feel more and more this strength of heart and courage to keep going. I was reading on the plane. I just came home a few days ago from Asia, and I was reading about Catherine Hepburn, who you know just passed away at 96. And uh, when she when she was 74, she said, "It's so endless to be old. It's too goddamn bad that you're rotting away." You know, and this is 
she had another 20 years to, <laughs> to live. And obviously, uh, the courage for it. But we need courage to, to embrace change, to embrace the, the impermanence that we experience in our own mind and body, because it gets deeper and deeper, and our insight gets more and more radical, and the vulnerability becomes more sensitive, more raw. You know, there's a lot of areas where we can stop and pull back and not go forward. So without this creative energy and the capacity to create a shelter for our vulnerability and to, to grieve change and loss, mindfully, you know, this is the way it is. We do get old, and it is too goddamn bad that we're rotting away. But it's the truth of things. And the truth ultimately is liberating. The truth frees us. So I'll have to do patience and renunciation another time. Uh, but I'll just take a couple more minutes so I can close first with uh, a story, short story about a flower, and then I'm going to read a poem. The flower is a vine that lives at my mother's house. She's 92, and it's been there for the whole 50 years that she's been living there. It's a night-blooming cereus. It blooms once every August on the full moon. And you can start to prepare for it. A couple of weeks before the full moon, you see all these blossoms lining up on the, on the vine. And then the night of the full moon, the moon comes up over, over, uh, over Cocoa Head, this volcanic mountain uh, near where my mom lives. As the moon rises, all these flowers, these cereus, begin to open. They have beautiful, delicate, feminine white petals and yellow staminas that come out in a ever so subtle scent. They open wide and bright, and they just capture one's moment in, in this enchanting world and hold one's attention for beauty and, and possibility uh, for, those few, you know, for those few hours. By the time the moon sets, all the flowers close. And the next day, there's no flowers. And you don't see them again, ever till next year when there's another bloom. Powerful metaphor for really being present uh, for what's there and, and, and holding it in its beauty, in its change, in its loss. You know, holding both grief and gratitude. The closing poem is about attitude. Not being perfect, not needing to be perfect. It's by our poet laureate of America, Billy Collins, called Dharma. The way the dog trots out the front door every morning without a hat or an umbrella, without any money or the keys to her doghouse, <laughs> never fails to fill the saucer of my heart with milky admiration. Who provides a finer example of a life without encumbrance? Thoreau in his curtainless hut with a single plate, a single spoon? Gandhi with his staff and holy diapers? <laughs> Off she goes into the material world with nothing but her own brown coat and her modest little blue collar, following only her nose, the twin portals of her steady breathing followed only by the plume of her tail. If only she did not shove the cat aside every morning <laughs> and eat all his food, what a model of self-containment she would be. <laughs> what a paragon of earthly detachment. If only she were not so eager for a rub behind the ears, so acrobatic in her welcomes. 
if only I were not her God. <laughs> Let's sit for a few moments. best instruction my teacher ever gave me was all you have to do is just be in the present moment. I'll take care of everything else. 